Lord God, we come before you pleading only the blood of the Lord Jesus, that blood that pleads for us even now in heaven. We ask, O oh God, that you would give us a glimpse of the glory of Christ, even as our great high priest who has brought us near to you. Help us to see it and to savor it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are working through our verse-by-verse exposition, our verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. We've been in it for several months now, and today we come to Hebrews 7, starting at verse 11. And if you're using the Bible in your row, it's on, uh, this passage is on page 1004. If you do not have a Bible or you don't have one that's as, maybe as readable as the version that we use here, we would be delighted for you to take that copy of God's Word home and, and keep it as our gift to you. Now, just as a reminder, we started Hebrews 7 last week looking at a mysterious character named Melchizedek. He's a character that he showed up about 2000 BC or so in Genesis 14. He he met Abraham in sort of this mysterious scene as Abraham was returning from battle. We don't hear a word about him for about a thousand years, and then in Psalm 110, King David makes this statement, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The, those are the only two Old Testament references to Melchizedek, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And then you don't hear that name again for another thousand years or so in Scripture. And then you come to the book of Hebrews, and that name is mentioned again and again and again. And Melchizedek has captured the imagination of Bible scholars and, and lay people alike for, for 2,000 years now as to how it is that this man just sort of shows up on the scene, has a minuscule role, and then all of a sudden we get to Hebrews and we see the superiority of Melchizedek, that he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than the entire Levitical priesthood, and it really has captured the imaginations of many, and, and there's been much debate over whether Melchizedek may have been a pre-incarnate Christ, he may have been an angel, or he was a mere man. And if you were here last week, you know that I argued for the, the third, that this passage really isn't to show us anything special about Melchizedek, but to show us how, by looking at Melchizedek, we see how special the Lord Jesus is as a different kind of priest than anything we had ever known before. We're going to look at why that priesthood of Christ matters today Hebrews 7, starting at verse 11. This is the word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? When it talks about the Levitical priesthood or the order of Aaron, that's just talking about the, the priests that served in the temple day after day in the Old Testament. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you're a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the high priests, to offer, daily, offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. About a month ago, millions watched as the Queen of England was laid to rest after 70 years as the monarch. I can remember twice having opportunity to go to Buckingham Palace, but you know, as much as I wanted to, nobody would let me in just to have a quick chat with the queen. The doors of the palace were guarded by those iconic, tall-hatted queen's guard known for their unflinching poker face as they stand on guard duty. You know, they look like toy soldiers, but they're far from it. I don't know if you realize one of them almost shot the queen one time when she was out on a midnight stroll. And she was also guarded by some of Scotland Yard's best-trained officers, but she wasn't the most guarded of all world leaders. When the President of the United States travels, he's typically accompanied by hundreds of Secret Service staff who oversee everything related to his security. And even that is nothing compared to Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. He's protected by the Federal Protection Service. Their ultimate job is to keep Putin safe, and it's a billion-dollar government entity that uh, its actual size and magnitude is, is unknown. But its officers have almost unlimited authority to go to any extent to protect the president. With that said, let me ask you a question. If these world leaders, flawed as they are, warrant such inaccessibility from the outside world, why do we assume that we can just march into the presence of the God who is infinitely greater than all of them combined? You know, men have committed terrible acts throughout history, 
But the most audacious act of mankind is to believe that we can, on our own, with all our sin, with all our rebellion, come into the presence of a holy God. So how can we come into the presence of God? That's the most important question you can ever ask. Because one day, everyone will stand before God and judgment and you will either be invited into his presence or you will be cast out in eternal judgment. Now you might say, nah, I don't believe in, a, in God or I don't believe in a God like that, so I'm not worried about it. You know, if you and I were riding down the road going out of town and you were going about 80 miles an hour down, Sam, uh, down Highway 21 and, and we get ready to go into Labico, I'm going to say, hey, you need to slow down because there's a speed trap there. There's always a policeman waiting. And if you're going faster than about 55, you're going to get pulled. You could look at me and say, no, I don't believe in police. But guess what? You're about to get pulled. You may not profess to believe in this God, but one day you will stand before this God in judgment. So how can sinners stand in the presence of a holy God? How do we draw near to the one whose all-seeing eye has seen everything you've ever done, his all-hearing ear has heard everything you've ever said, and in fact, he knows every thought you've ever had? How do we draw near to that God? The Old Testament had an answer for us. If you were to read the 39 books of the Old Testament, it could be summarized like this. Two words. You can't. You can't. You look back at the Old Testament. One of the things you see is that the Jewish people, as pious as many of them were, they lived with limited access to the presence of God. You, you think about the structure of the temple, and it was built in concentric courts. First was the court of the Gentiles, and if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go any further. And then was the court of women, and if you were a woman, you couldn't go any further than that. And then you had the, the court of the Jewish men, but unless you were a priest, you couldn't go any further than that. But then there was in the center the most holy of holies, the most holy place, that was symbolic of the presence of God. And the Jewish high priest could only go in there once a year for just a few minutes to offer a sacrifice. And the message that that communicates is that there's a disparity between the awesome holiness of God and the awful sinfulness of men. And it created a divide that millions of sacrifices by hundreds of thousands of priests over thousands of years were unable to reconcile. And so the message of, of the Old Testament, in a sense, is keep out. Sinners not welcome here. And if you're wondering, well, did the Old Testament fail? Not at all. It was never intended to give us the ability to bridge the divide. It was intended to show us that we couldn't bridge that divide. We couldn't fix that disparity between the awesome holiness of God and the awful sinfulness of men. All of it pointed to the need of a Messiah who could bridge that disparity. And so the New Testament if we bring that question of how can we stand in the presence of God, 
The New Testament answers that question through his son, Jesus Christ. The entire message of the New Testament is simple. Through Christ and Christ alone, you can draw near. That's, that's the key part of our passage today there in, in verse 19. The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. What's that better hope? It's the Lord Jesus, through which we draw near to God. That's the message of the New Testament. And it's so important because it's God's desire for us is that we, His people, would draw near to Him. I don't want you to think, I know this passage has a lot of technical terms, doesn't it? It's easier for your mind to get lost in in some of the technicalities. But I want you to understand, when we talk about drawing near to God, we're talking about what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, the presence of God is the only thing that can saturate our hearts with solid joy and lasting treasure. In other words, the presence of God is the thing your heart longs for. Most of us don't even realize that, but even when you're seeking sin, You're looking to find that thing that can ultimately satisfy your soul. You know, that's what addiction is. It's the promise that this thing will finally bring me satisfaction if I keep going back to it. When you have that longing that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, it's because your heart was only made to be satisfied by being in the presence of God. G.K. Chesterton, sort of a predecessor to C.S. Lewis, said, even the man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. This passage, with all its technical language and its comparisons back to the old covenant institutions, is really showing us that only in Christ can we find what our souls long for, because only in Christ can we come near to God. And there's three things I want you to see in this passage. All of them point to the glory of Christ. And first is that Jesus is the better priest. He's the better priest. Second, Jesus is the ultimate priest. And third, Jesus is the permanent priest. So better, ultimate, permanent. First, the writer of Hebrews says we can draw near because Jesus is the better priest. In the Old Covenant, the duty of the priest was through sacrifice after sacrifice to bring the people to God. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Now, sometimes in Scripture, that word perfect can mean complete or mature. But in this case, it it literally means perfect, the kind of perfection that is required for a person to stand in the presence of a holy God. That's, That's what it's talking about. Verse 19, it has the same meaning. The law made nothing perfect. You you couldn't be perfected by the Old Testament law. 
And so the point it's making, those Old Testament institutions, they couldn't do it. You could go back day after day, month after month, year after year. You could provide sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and it still would not make you presentable for the presence of God. You know, in fact, the law, if we really, if somebody really humbly understood the law, they realize there's no way I can keep all of this perfectly. And if somebody looked at the sacrifices and said, you know, if these sacrifices take away sin, why do we have to do it again and again and again? We did this last week, last month, last year. Why do we keep doing this? F.F. Bruce, commentator, says, the whole apparatus of worship associated with sacrifice and ritual and priesthood was calculated rather to keep men at a distance from God than to bring them near. It wasn't intended that by obedience to the law and by sacrifices, people could make themselves presentable to God. Actually, the opposite intent was given. It was to show them they couldn't draw near. Well, the thoughtful person's going to say, why did it exist then? Why did why did the the Jewish people have this law and this institution for 1,400 years because it foreshadowed the grace that was to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And all the benefits that were to be conveyed in that Old Testament system were pointing to what we would receive in the sacrifice of Christ. That actually means that saints in the Old Testament were redeemed the same way that we are in the New Testament. They were redeemed by trusting in the coming Messiah. We're redeemed by looking back to the Messiah who has already come. And so the Old Testament was never meant to be the final resting place for God's people. It was always intended to make them long for something better. What could Jesus do that old covenant priests could not? What made him better? He is able to make us perfect before God. Christ came. He was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly. He lived out its every requirement every day in every way for 33 years. So that those who receive him by faith are made perfect as well. Through Christ, we are made acceptable to God, and God is made accessible to us. Just think about the Lord Jesus upon the cross for a moment. He's hung there for some time. It's about 3 p.m. The darkness that's hovered over the land was about to lift. Jesus cries out in a loud voice that it is finished, and he gives up his spirit And that moment, we're told that the earth shook and rocks split, and that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Tearing the curtain was the Father's declaration that the old covenant system, with its sacrifice, with its priesthood, it was over. Because something better had come. Perfection had been attained 
in the Lord Jesus, the great high priest for whom the world was designed. He gave himself as the final sacrifice. Now remember this, Hebrews is being written to Jewish believers. They had been raised in the temple or they had been raised in the synagogue, but they came to believe in the Lord Jesus. But for various reasons, persecution, ostracism, all of that, they started to say, you know, maybe we should go back. Maybe life wasn't so bad in the temple. And this letter is saying, hey, just think about it for a second. If the old covenant systems were adequate to bring you near to God, why would Jesus have had to come? He came because you needed a better priest. Just, it's kind of like when you go to get your car worked on. It's making an awful sound. So you take it to a mechanic, and the mechanic calls you and says, I fixed it. So you go to pick up your car. You drive off, and it's making the exact same sound. So you take it back to him. He calls you back, says, I've fixed it. Come get it. You drive off. It's making the same sound. You might do that a couple times, but at some point you go, you know, I've got to have a better mechanic because he just doesn't seem to be able to fix it. Hebrews is saying that was what the old covenant priesthood was. It couldn't fix your sin problem. It could only show you your need. You need a better priest who could take away sin once and for all, make you acceptable to God. As a preacher of a passage like this, I, I sort of live between two worlds. The world of, of, of the first century, these Jewish believers, and us in the 21st century today. What do all these technicalities of Jesus as our better priest, what do they matter to you and me today in October of 2022? They matter because if you want to know God, if you want to stand in the presence of God, you need a priest who is able to make you perfect, to present you blameless before himself. Remember that old covenant reading that I read just a few minutes ago, Jeremiah 31, 34, I will remember your sin no more. It's not as if God says, you know, I'm going to pretend that never happened. He takes our sin and he laid it upon the Lord Jesus. He takes Jesus' righteousness and wraps it around us like a glorious robe. John Calvin said it beautifully. He said, Christ turns the Father's gaze onto himself, to his righteousness, to avert his gaze from our sin. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the throne. It means if you belong to Christ, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, then you have been made perfect. I am far from perfect. But in the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, I have been made perfect by my great high priest, and therefore, I'm not kept at a distance from God. The God of the universe says to me, Alex, draw near. Draw near. The sin has been dealt with. Just come into my presence. And that can be hard for me to believe at times because I know myself. And you know yourself. And we know 
that each of us has some part of us that really shouldn't be forgivable, don't we? It shouldn't just be forgiven. Maybe we think we can do enough good deeds to undo it, but, you know, there's some part of our past that we know, you know, that really shouldn't be forgiven. Maybe it's something that we're struggling with right now that seems so ugly and disgusting that it would leave us beyond help. But Christian, in saying that Christ is able to perfect us, it means that God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring grace is able to reach into the deepest, darkest crevices of our heart, the the ones that we've hoped nobody would ever see, and take away the guilt of our sins so that we can draw near to God. That's why this better priest matters today. Jesus is the better priest that we need. Second, Jesus is the ultimate priest, the last priest. The author has reminded them that the Levitical priests came and went. Thousands of them, probably hundreds of thousands through the years, came and went. They were disposable in a sense. They lived, they died, they were forgotten. But in verse 15, we're told another priest has come in the likeness of Melchizedek, a different kind of priest, who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, it's not his, his tribal genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. You see, the Old Testament priests, when they died or when they hit a certain age, had to be replaced. Another one would follow, and another one would follow. But when Jesus died, he was resurrected. So we don't need another high priest to replace him. He has an indestructible life. We can't underestimate the importance of this. Everything that the Scriptures point to, whether it was in Melchizedek or in the Levitical priesthood, as well as every story from Scripture, finds its fulfillment in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He is the final priest to come. He's the one that has been long awaited for. And because He is the ultimate priest... That means you and me need nothing more than the Lord Jesus because he is sufficient to bring us near to God. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Well, again, let's, let's, let's bring it from the first century to today. Why does that matter? If you're a Christian, you need to realize the access you have to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will say to me, would you pray for me? They'll give me whatever the issue is, and I am happy to do so. But a lot of times they'll say, because, they'll say will you pray for me? Because you have a direct line. You know, that's silly. If you belong to Christ, then you have as much access to God in prayer as I do. God is your father. Jesus is your elder brother. You do not need to go through earthly intercessors to get to God. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the most famous American ministers of the first half of the last century. 
when he was in seminary, he served a church in the French Alps, and he developed a relationship with the local Catholic priest, and they became good friends. And one day, the, the priest asked him, why do you Protestants not pray to the saints? Barnhouse asked, why should we? Well, the priest said, suppose we wanted to get an interview with the president of France. We could go maybe to the Ministry of Agriculture or the Department of the Interior because they have access to him. And maybe they could grant us access. Maybe they could take our request for us. He said, that's what we're doing when we seek to intercede through the saints, through Mary, when we ask for her help in prayer. Barnhouse replied, suppose I were the son of the president and I live in the palace with him and we eat breakfast together and he gets up to go to his office and I go then to the Department of the Interior or the Ministry of the Agriculture and I ask them to set up an appointment with him, with my father? Are you kidding me? Why would I go to a subordinate when I have direct access to my father? The absurdity of it was clear. Why would we need other earthly saints to intercede for us as if they have more access to God than we do? If Jesus is yours, then the Father is yours. You're a child of God, an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. And through his perfecting work, you have immediate access to your heavenly father. You, You don't need to go through earthly intercessors. You do not need saints who have died long before to pray for you. Or you do not need to pray to them as if they have greater access. They do not. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and so don't you dare seek other intermediaries when you have immediate access to God through Christ. It makes a mockery of the cross. Jesus is the ultimate priest. Third, Jesus is the permanent priest. I'm sure that throughout history, the history of Israel, there were some extraordinarily wonderful and godly priests who taught God's word well, who pointed people well towards the excellencies of the coming Messiah. But none of them had an indestructible life. They had a a short shelf life. It's kind of like being a pastor. I've been a pastor for nine years. I've aged 90 years in the process. And some of you are very faithful to remind me how much I've aged because you point out my gray hairs and I like to point out that most of my gray hairs are from you. But even my gray hair reminds me that I'm temporary. And and even if the Lord allows me to serve here until some ripe old age, one day someone will come replace me and I'll be forgotten. But Jesus is not a temporary high priest. He's a permanent priest. He's not going to die off or get voted out or retire. He is, as this passage says, he's a priest forever. In fact, that must be a big deal because Hebrews 7 has said that three times, and it says it two other times. In other words, five times. It makes the point Jesus is a priest forever. What does that mean for us? 
What does it mean that he's a permanent priest? Look at verse 22. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the guarantor of the promises of God. You know, if we were to take the Bible and work from Genesis to Revelation, we would see that the Bible's really the story of God keeping his promises. The promise in Genesis 3 that God made to Adam that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The promise made to Noah that never again would God flood the earth. The promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. The promises made to Moses, the promise to David, the promise to Jeremiah of the new covenant. All of those find their fulfillment in Jesus. He's the guarantor of the covenant of grace. And because he's a permanent priest, his promises are ours forever. They're ours forever. Look at verse 24. He holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What use would a Savior be if he couldn't save us completely and eternally? What good is a salvation that lasts for a while but might go away if God changes his mind or another God should take his place? It would be of no good. That's what Jesus came to do, though, to be the guarantor of a better covenant. He will never be unseated. He will never be removed. He will never resign, never retire. And as long as he stands in heaven, your future in heaven is assured as well. I thought a lot about this this week. We do not talk enough about the priesthood of Christ, but we sing it a lot. We sang it last week before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Now, if Jesus' term were going to end one day, so would the promises of God. But he's permanent, and therefore so are the promises of God. That's what Jesus died for, to make you perfect before God, and that is irretractable. No mind will ever be changed about that. If you belong to Christ and you have been justified, that will never be taken away. It would make God a liar. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How do you plan to stand before God one day? Because you will. Well, I've been a pretty good person. I've made a few mistakes along the way, but... My good certainly outweighs my bad. If that's you, just think about the cross for a second. Jesus being crucified shows us what must happen to sin. Sin must be punished. And the cross shows us that it is incomparably arrogant for us to think we can make ourselves acceptable to God without Jesus. 
to think that we could somehow produce enough good in us to wash away our own sin is the height of human arrogance. No, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. If you want to draw near to God, the only way to do so is by resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Putting all your hopes of eternity in that torn curtain. Torn because it is finished. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If you're trusting him, you may be certain. You must be certain that you can draw near to God in him and through him. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. The guarantee of every spiritual blessing that Christ has purchased for you is inscribed in his nail-pierced hands. Everything we need to draw near to God is found in Christ alone. Don't stand at a distance from God. Don't be satisfied with less, but make it your life's purpose to draw near and to live day after day in the presence of this great God who calls us to draw near to him, who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we apply this text? Just a couple of quick applications. First, don't ever read a passage of scripture that seems technical and hard and just give up on it, because this passage is pretty technical and hard. But do you see all that there is if you do the hard work? A lot of us, if if there's not low-hanging fruit, we just move on to the next passage. Do you see what you miss? When you do the work to pick the fruit, you get to taste its sweetness. And we see that in this text. Second, this passage gives us reason to fight sin in our lives. You know, sometimes people will worry that if we talk about grace being completely the work of God, and that we are justified by faith alone, not by works. People worry that if we talk about forgiveness like that, then people will, will go on sinning just because they know they can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul dealt with that in the book of Romans. But if we really understand that grace brings us near to the presence of God, not only does, do I understand that it frees me from sin's power, But when Christ brings me into the presence of God, I find that there is one who is able to so satisfy the longings of my soul that those earthly temptations begin to lose their grip on me. Or as we sing often, the things of earth grow strangely dim. Fight sin so that you can enjoy the presence of God. And the more you enjoy the presence of God, the more you'll be able to fight sin. Finally, just remember, beloved, as our great high priest, Christ makes intercession for us. Right now, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for you. He prays for his elect. You see this in John chapter 17. 
I don't pray for the whole world. I pray for those whom you've given me. And even now, if you could hear the throne room of heaven, you would hear the Lord Jesus praying for his saints by name. Oh, what confidence that gives. And we might not be able to hear it, yet it is true nonetheless that the Lord Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. Let's go to him in prayer now. Our God in heaven, we praise you for this good word. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that that the sweetness of Christ causes sin to lose its taste. And so I pray that you would draw us near to yourself and that we would live day by day in close fellowship with you. God, we thank you that in Christ we have access in prayer, in fellowship. We have one who understands what it is to be human, and he ever lives at the right hand of the throne. God, may that